0: The Bookfinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and Hamilton the Musical. This is episode 36, featuring Courtney Milan at the Australian Romance Readers' Convention in Melbourne. Bookfinger would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the book. On the Book podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode and that you check out some of our past interviews. It's always a thrill to hear from readers. So if you're on Twitter or Facebook, feel free to reach out and say hello. We will reward you with lots of grateful emojis. My guest for this episode is Courtney Milan, who was one of the keynote speakers at the 2017 Australian Romance Readers Convention in Melbourne. She delivered one of the best opening keynotes I've heard. Not only did she deliver a very powerful message about the role of romance fiction in affirming women's strengths and desires, but the narrative of her speech was so exquisitely structured that when she got to the end, I remember feeling like, wow, she is an amazing storyteller. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, and I feel so lucky that I had a chance to have this conversation with Courtney. I hope you enjoy listening to it. All the books and authors we mention on the show will be listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookthingo.com.au podcast. Click on episode number 36. First of all, you did a very exciting reading in one of the panels today for your upcoming book. Can you tell us a little bit about that book?
1: Um, it's actually an anthology that I'm doing with Rose Lerner and Alyssa Cole. And it's a Hamilton-themed anthology uh, that will be called Hamilton's Battalion. And the basic idea is when Eliza Hamilton is writing Hamilton's biography, one of the things that she does is she goes around and she interviews all the soldiers that served under him in the Revolutionary War. And so we thought it would be kind of cool to have a story that involves those the stories of those soldiers being told to... Eliza Hamilton and her, her aide, who is actually going to be one of the protagonists. Of
0: the so uh, these are fictional characters? Though? These are absolutely fictional characters for the most part. Uh, the protagonists are fictional. Okay. And the prompt for this project is obviously Hamilton the musical. Okay. Do you have a sense of why this musical has touched so many people's lives and emotions? I
1: think, that it, when, I think it touches people's lives and emotions for the same reason that I think historical romance does. It's something that helps us contextualize the past while also at the same time bringing the present uh, into it. so it's not just about Hamilton and the start of the United States and somebody being Secretary of the Treasury and coming up with this really complicated treasury plan, which I think can be very boring to people it's some, it's the fact that it's told in a really modern style with sort of rapid hip hop elements and um The fact that they have most, the main cast members are all being played by people of color, it's it it brings a currency to events that we don't think about very often, um, and allows us to see the founding fathers of the United States as people and not as gods, and that I think has really resonated with people. And have you seen the musical yourself? I have. I actually um, Alyssa and I. Uh, When we decided to do this anthology, we realized we could write it off on our taxes. And so (laughs) that was actually, I'm not going to say that it was a motivation to write the stories, was the fact that we would be able to write off seeing Hamilton on our taxes. Tax-deductible Hamilton. um... Yeah. So Alyssa and I um, got tickets to Hamilton, and they were not that expensive for Hamilton tickets, which is, I guess, good. But they were still pretty expensive, and they were literally as far as you could get from the stage. Like, you could not be any farther from the stage. There was nothing behind us but a wall, um, and it was still the most amazing experience of our lives, and we spent the entire time sort of watching the stage like this.
0: Was that just after RT last year? Because I think yeah, I was. saw you tweeting that you were going to Hamilton. I was yes. dead dead jealous. Yeah, Alyssa,
1: um, Alyssa was uh, – so she lives in Martinique and she was only in the United States for a little bit um, for RT and then her family lives in New York, so she was visiting them there. So we had a very narrow window and we could go. And
0: What was the experience like to get the tickets? She did all the work oh, and okay. I sent her money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I
1: think it's actually not that bad because there's um, a ticket exchange – I don't know. I think that um, we had been having just this love fest for Hamilton uh, in this little chat group that we have because it's so, it feels so fresh and it feels so modern and it feels so great to have. It just made me, it made us all feel like we were sort of part of the country in a, in a time when I feel like there are elements that are trying to make us, and I I guess maybe this isn't obvious since we're talking, but I'm half Chinese and Alyssa is black and our, you know, our chat group would keep, contains people who are generally sort of excluded from typical narratives about the start of the country. And it it just made us feel really included and in, and in a part of something and we want to keep being a part of it. And you know, the idea of I think one of the cool things about Hamilton is there's this idea of, you know, the question of who tells the story is really important. And we just thought about the fact that there's so many stories that haven't been told and we want to be we we want to to keep putting ourselves in.
0: So that leads very nicely into the types of books that you write because you tell stories of women that we don't very often see in historical romance. I think maybe that's changing now Mm -hmm. that we're getting sort of a younger crop of writers um, starting to explore these stories. But first of all, what inspired you to write about suffragettes and scientists um, in the Victorian era? I,
1: you know, the answer to that is just... I don't know how I could not. I think the very first the first few books that I wrote uh I took a, a little bit of time to sort of get my feet under me and sort of to feel like I understood the it, the underpinnings of the genre and how things got put together. But beyond that, I, I mean, I was a scientist for a very long time and I've been a feminist pretty much since I was born. I, I don't know how not to be how not to believe in women's ability to do things. I was, there's five girls in my family. My mom was always the one who would, you know, something was broken. She was going to fix it. And I I just, I don't know. It just, I think it would be much harder for me to pretend it didn't exist than to not. So I don't know that I was necessarily inspired to do it. I just think that when when I sort of got sort of the practice out of the way and I'm sort of like, okay, well, I know the basic form of a historical, and it should have a ball in it, it should have this, and it should have that. And then when I, when I got all that out of the way, and it was like, okay, what is the core of the story that I'm writing? Those core, the core things that really resonated with me, when I started to come into more of my own sort of voice in constructing a book, it's, it's going to come back to that sort of like, that person that I am. I'm not going to be able to write So this person.
0: anthology that revolves around Hamilton, Mm-hmm is it going to have similar elements of telling stories that are not usually told in romance? I think so. Well, yes, probably. Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sorry. Actually, I'm just not saying anything. Yeah. So that maybe you'll tell us exactly what Well, these, I, I don't want to say exactly
1: are. what because um, we're, still, we're still finalizing things in Fair the last enough. stages. But Rose's story is the heroine is Jewish and she's, dress, she's, she's a soldier dressed up. As a, as a boy, which is, by the way, my very favorite thing to read in the entire world. And Alyssa's story is actually two women. Um, and I don't want to give away too much, but yeah. So, and mine is male-male, uh, and one of them is a former slave, and the other one is a former British officer.
0: Wow. So these are the kinds of stories that anecdotally we've heard other writers saying oh i've been told that that's not going to sell what has been your experience um in terms of the reception to your stories that you've written that you know maybe would not have fit the traditional mold of historical romance or even new adult romance um
1: i don't think that there's any truth to the fact that they don't sell um, so as an example, um, I don't know if you know about the Ripped Bodice bookstore in L.A. We do. Um, we do. it's fabulous if you ever have the chance. We to visited, visit it, Oh my yeah. God, it's amazing. So one of the things that I was told when I went there is that they have a copy of, they have multiple copies of Trade Me and they can't keep it in stock because L.A. has such a large Asian population that people walk in and they see a book with Asians on the cover and people just grab it immediately and, uh... I really think people underestimate the demand for these sorts of things and the willingness of, I mean, I I don't want to imply that it's only Asians who are grabbing it, because it's not. I I think people underestimate the fact that there are a lot of people in this country that really just think that people are people. And maybe there are, I'm sure there are some people who don't want to read about people of color or, you know, um, LGBT people or whatever, but... That's okay. No one's forcing them to. No one's forcing them to, and you know, there's people who don't want to read about lots of things. So sometimes people try and sell diverse books by just talking about the diverse elements and not talking about the plot. And I think that that's a problem because nobody buys books for the care. I mean, like, if you described a book, okay, let, let's let's pick a book. Um, let's pick Lord of Scoundrels, and you said, let, let's describe it. It's a white guy <laughs> of Italian heritage. And he meets a white girl, and they're in France, right? And if you described it that way, nobody would want to buy it, right? And if he, but if you said, he's, what it, he's Marquess, he's a Marquess, right? So if you said, he's a powerful Marquess, and he's never been tamed by love because of secret trauma in his past, but the heroine Wells past everything and manages to make him see that she is the only one that, that can force him to his knees, people would be like, give me Exult. that book. Yeah. Give me that book, right? And I think that um, it's because people respond to a story and not like a list of elements about a character. And so when you're selling your books, you should be selling the story. And you should be doing that regardless of what elements apply to the characters. I think that people buy books for story. And some people do buy books for character elements, but I don't think it's the most effective way to sell things. So I actually have this idea, and I don't know when it will come into fruition, but it probably will. Um, so Minnie's great-aunts in the Duchess War, I really want to write the story of how they got together, and I know exactly how they did it, um, but they're obviously lesbian. Actually, I should specify that um, one of them's lesbian one of them's bisexual, but they're in a committed um, relationship with each other and have been for a very long time. So I really want to write that. Um, and I'm not sure how long the story is. I haven't really started plotting it out, but I know exactly sort of what happened, and it's Probably Novella Life. Um, don't worry, you'll get lesbians. <laughs> I, <know>. I wonder
0: <laughs> if iTunes will, there will, be, there
1: will be There will be plenty of lesbians, and there will be plenty of um, gay and bisexual characters. and um, yeah.
0: What's your stand on sensitivity readers?
1: I think it's really complicated, um, and probably longer than we can cover here. So on the one hand, I think it's a good thing um, for people to be sensitive. Um, number one. Number two, I think it's very difficult. I think the idea of a sensitivity reader is, the idea is that you're basically inflicting pain on one person with the hope of not doing so to multiple people. But finding that one person, like, I don't think that the industry has figured out a good way to identify people who are good at being sensitivity readers because there's some people who are cheerleaders and basically what you're doing Um, is you're paying somebody to say, this book sucks and you have to do it differently. And somebody will have to be very sensitive, so to speak, to do that, A. And B, ultimately, if the author themselves is not sensitive, it's not going to work. Because the other thing is, I think there are very few books out there where it's just like, where it's diverse on just one axis. So, for example, um, you could have somebody read a book and say, hypothetically speaking, This didn't ring true to me because in such and such a culture, they're very down on weight issues and they would have, you know, this person absolutely would have her mom telling her that she needs to lose weight and blah, 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 all this stuff, right? Which is probably true, but also if you had somebody reading it from a fat perspective, that person would be like, okay, well, I don't want this constant, you know, string of fat shaming in the book because that's hurtful to me. And I think that one of the things you have to be able to do as an author um, before you get into the question of sensitivity readers, if you are not yourself sensitive, you shouldn't even be writing the book. And that sounds terrible. I don't know. I don't know. It's not that you shouldn't be writing the book, but I just don't think it's possible for you to write a book that's that can be fixed by a sensitivity reader if you haven't taken the time to try and figure out what puts people off. I mean, I I would say that before, before you even think about a sensitivity, re- sensitivity reader, and I feel like this is a conversation that needs to happen more than the sensitivity reader conver- con- conversation, is like go read reviews by people of the marginalization discussing books, dealing with that marginalization and see what they object to and train yourself enough that you can start reading the books and say, oh yeah, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it. If you can't see it yourself yet, I don't see how you can write a book that works. In all honesty, I feel like one read from a sense, like, usually these problems are really baked into the plot. And uh, the place they're often applied is, like, right near the end. And I think the vast majority of people, if they are told, this thing you spent six months doing is utter crap and you have to redo it, they're not going to.
0: The other issue that I have with sensitivity readers is that you're basically putting responsibility on the book's success on the sensitivity readers, or um, the book's success in terms of how it portrays yes. diversity. And then, you know, I've seen authors go, oh, but it's gone through sensitive- yes. sens- sensitivity readers. I'm like, it's not their fault that right. they, you know that they don't represent everybody. Right. The other thing
1: is I think that there's some places where there is legitimately no way not to hurt someone. And by that I mean... I'm trying to think of it if I have a good example off the top of my head. But, you know, I've had people say, you know, I'm Asian, and I felt like Tina's Chinese heritage was not sufficiently explored in this book. And I've had people say, I'm Asian, and I'm really glad that you didn't make the entire focus of the book her Chinese heritage. And those two things are both legitimate complaints, but they're not going to be solved in the same book. And I think part of the the problem we have is that the burden – of representation falls so heavily on the few books that we have that it's almost impossible to have books that don't leave somebody saying I wish that this had been handled differently and that's a personal thing.
0: Because but it's you're a, carrying people, so many right, expectations right. in one book. Right,
1: like, like, so, so there's, I think there's, there's a multitude of issues here um, and a lot of them come down to the fact that we have a, a systemic problem And a sensitivity reader is not going to solve that systemic problem. At best, you can expect a a sensitivity reader to say things like, "Hey, this is a racial slur. Did you know?" And that's going to leave most of the systemic issues still in place. So I'm not I'm not against sensitivity readers by any stretch of the imagination. I just think that people can't imagine people shouldn't be seeing them as a solution. They are at best a band aid
0: for a gushing wound. So you mentioned covers. Um, I know that you had this project to try and get more um, stock images of people of color that authors can use for book covers. How has that been? Well, it wasn't really a project. I think somebody else had a Kickstarter for it.
1: And, uh, no. Uh, so, so there's two separate things. So there's the, um, somebody else had a Kickstarter to create stock images. And I, you know, I let people know about that, but I wasn't really involved with it. Okay. So how
0: was it difficult to find um, cover images for your books?
1: Uh, I had to have a photo shoot. So I have a friend who lives in L.A., and she's a photographer, and we actually sat down and we had to do full casting calls and do a little bit of searching. So for Hold Me, my heroine is a trans Latina, and I was pretty specific that I wanted to make sure that the person on the cover was also a trans Latina. So um, Jen, my, my photographer, really, really went through the effort of going through and found um, an entire agency that only works with trans models and talked to them and they gave us a couple of possibilities. But I, it really helped to have somebody who was a photographer who also wasn't going to tell me, oh, it'll be just as good. I mean, she, I told her what I wanted and she also believes in having people represented and that made a huge difference.
0: So speaking of hold me, hold me actually has characters that you would actually probably never see in, in mainstream new adult fiction, not even just romance. Um, but it's not an issues book. So there's this there's sometimes this idea that if you have diverse characters the book will be all about their issues. Um, and it's not the case. Do you find as a writer that the issues get in the way or is that just something that is in the background in, in, in how you construct the characters? It's a
1: book by book question. Like I think I have some books where it has been where whatever diverse element of the characters has been an issue in the book more than others. And I think it's a book-by-book thing. I try not to make things, quote-unquote, issue books, because I feel like we don't – people will label things as issues just for existing, and we never talk about the fact that whiteness is an issue in a book. And if we talked about it the same way that we did – people talk about issues being an issue in books that have diverse characters, we'd be like – man, they're just flaunting the whiteness of that character with how she goes in the shop and nobody ever follows her around and wonders if she's stealing anything. You know, look at that book. It's all about the whiteness of the character who's driving and never gets pulled over. And we don't do that sort of thing. And I try not to... I I, I feel like it's important to portray everyone's internal life as being their normal. Like, nobody sees themselves as being the other. It's always, you know, within your own head, this is what this is what you look like and not like you don't see yourself from the outside in the same way. And so I, I, my goal is to always try and portray people as coming from that internal center where they see themselves as just themselves.
0: So one of the things that I love about Trade Me is the fact that the heroine is in a socioeconomic situation that was, you know, less, she was less affluent than the hero. Mm -hmm and she just wouldn't let the hero get away with the assumptions that he was making about other people's lives mm-hmm. because he, had, he just didn't know any differently. And I thought it was just a great... You, you did a great job of incorporating that into the story and actually it being into integral to the plot without sort of forcing it down people's throats, and I think sometimes not every author can do that. Thank you. I... Thank that you. wasn't a question. Yeah. That was a fangirl moment. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of dragged on there. <laughs> um, I've heard that you write your first drafts by hand, um, but you're also very much um, on social media, on online platforms. Is there a particular reason why you do your drafts longhand? To begin um,
1: with? There is a reason why I do. It's, it's, not, it's a mixture of longhand and typing. Um, so first of all, The idea that longhand is incompatible with technology is false. At this point I do all of my handwriting on my iPad Pro and I have an Apple Pencil and so it's literally being written on a screen and then uploaded to Dropbox so that I don't have to worry about losing scenes on paper which I've done before. Um, So it is actually a very technological solution. As to why I do it, I, I don't know that I have a good answer except that I write very differently on paper or on iPad, I guess now it is, than I do when I'm typing things out. There's something about having to write each letter that really slows me down and makes me think about things more. I I don't let myself get away with as much crap, is perhaps the way to put it. When I'm writing something down and it's stupid, like you, you can think this is crap, this is crap, this is crap, far more times in the same sentence versus if you're writing it out, then you just have time to think this is crap, and then you're done. Right? And you're moving on. And so I think it makes me more introspective and I'm a little harder on myself and I sort of force myself to do things that surprise me because I get bored faster when I'm writing. I don't know. I, that's the best explanation I have. I just think my brain works differently on paper and it works better. Th- this is going to get really complicated. So what I have, and I guess I shouldn't use visual aids because here we are and this is all, you know... Um, that's okay.
0: We can describe it. I can describe it.
1: Yeah. So... Um, this is what I do. I have um, an app on my iPad, which I spend like 98% of my time on my iPad in this app. Um, And let me pull up something. So I have, for every project, I have a separate notebook. And I keep notes for myself about things that are going on, which one of these should I use. Um, This is my Hamilton story. Okay. So I have – this is me trying to figure out what the hell is going on with this. And so, like, I start writing out scenes that I think are going to happen in the book and people's names and all this stuff. Uh, The names actually have changed since I wrote this. And then I go through – and then – so this is me me sort of, like, thinking through the story, like, sort of what the basic themes are. And then blank page. And then trying to figure out personality traits – for the characters and then I start getting into what I think scenes might be and so here are scenes that I start writing out like in order here are some scenes that I think that have to happen and some of these things as I'm writing them out um, I basically write out like they, they look like little like scripts where it's like here I have John saying they're just words Henry they're not they're ideals. Right? And I can often be very snarky in these. Like I wouldn't actually write it that way, but it's me sort of like trying to capture like, what the flow of the scene is and what's going on and all of this stuff. And sometimes when I feel like I've done this really well and I've got it, then I will actually type that scene in rather than handwrite it because I know that it fits. I tend to handwrite things when I haven't been able to figure it out yet. Is
0: it when it's not linear yet that you prefer Oh, no, it's all not linear. Okay.
1: All of this is nonlinear. I end up writing things completely out of order no matter what. So I'll brainstorm like four scenes in the book and then I'll write those. And those four scenes will be like in the middle, at the end, maybe at the beginning, who knows. And then as I'm writing them, then I'm like, okay, well, in order to get to this scene at the end, they have to be in this place. So how am I going to get them to this place? And then I brainstorm those scenes and then sort of like it gradually connects. So it all gets written out of order.
0: Are you an author who prefers to work on your own, or do you need to constantly have conversations with other writers to work through your your writing? I hate other people.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, 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 actually, I actually have a really hard time working with other people because I have, um, somebody used the word demand resistance. I am... Near the end of my family, I'm number six out of seven kids, and people have been trying to tell me what to do all my life, and it pisses me off even if they're right. So actually brainstorming can be very negative for me because even if somebody says something that actually is a great idea and I should do it, the fact that somebody else told me to do it makes me resistant to it. And then it it sometimes will take me months to work around to the fact that they're right um, because I'm being so stubborn. So it actually is really hard for me to work with other people. I don't usually uh, send, dra- send anything out for other people to look at until I have like a full draft. And even then, like I'll send it to you know my editor or my friend, and I w- I'll tell them, don't tell me what to do. Tell me what's not working. Because if they say, this part's not working, it's not believable that X would happen, or I think you need to develop this... Bit right here because the emotion's not coming through or something like that. I can I can then say yeah you're right I need to fix that and fix it. But if they if they say this isn't working she needs to do X then I'm like she's never gonna do X. I don't think that X is right. X is absolutely the wrong thing to do. So it's uh, managing my own sort of like quirks means that I have a very specific way that I work.
0: You don't let people get away with saying stupid things that you clearly <laughs> don't agree with. It's is Personality it just you, flaw. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, so you know that cartoon, the XKCD cartoon, where there's a guy sitting typing at his laptop, and somebody comes and says, what's going on, what's wrong? Somebody is wrong on the Internet, I can't go to bed. That person is me. I have a really hard time with people being wrong, especially being wrong about like really basic facts. And uh, yeah, this is, not, this is not a choice, this is like I, I have to, like, restrain myself and be like, no, people are allowed to be wrong on the Internet. It's okay, Courtney. Um, and so, But sometimes people do cross that line, and I I don't suffer fools well. It would save me a lot of time if I did.
0: But then you wouldn't write books that are half as good as what you're writing. Right. Now. I mean,
1: I have to take the person I am, and the person that I am – does have a strong personality and does react strongly when people say things that I think are just dumb.
0: Well, we love the fact that you have a strong personality and that you write strong personalities in your book. So thank you. Thank you. you. The fact that you can be, and I'm talking more generally here Mm -hmm. because I'm first generation Australian. So I actually wasn't born here. Um, And I found that I am torn when we have these discussions about diversity. Mm -hmm. And specifically for me, I guess it's Asian characters. Mm -hmm. um, Because on one hand, I have friends who are still in the Philippines who will be going, yes, there's a Filipino character. And then I've been in Australia for a long time and I'll be like, this Filipino character is portrayed so badly and there's so many stereotypes and whatever. And my friends are like, I don't care. The fact that we have one character in a mainstream book, we're happy. And so I'm kind of in that, um, but yeah. romance class is putting out so many wonderful oh, yeah, Filipino no. books. I yeah, mean, definitely. I'm not talking about romance class. Yeah, I yeah. no, I know. But I'm just saying, skip all the crappy Filipino characters and just read romance class books, right? Yeah, but the, then you come up, you come up against literary snobbery. Right. I know, but screw that. They're doing amazing, and it's not even just that they're writing books, but that Mina is driving which mm-hmm. books get written. Um, and I'm actually so amazed at what they're doing in the Philippines, and I hope that that can get replicated in other countries so we can start seeing these books. Yes.
1: Yes, I want them to take over the world. (laughs) Yes, yes. Okay, so my favorite is um, Six de Los Reyes. Beginner's Guide. Beginner's Guide. Oh, my God. Um, Actually, so I have this chat group of friends that I mentioned before, and Alyssa um, emailed and said, I just started this book, and it starts with a, a, what is it, um, an abstract for an article, and I was like, give it to me now, which is... By the way, that would be a crap way to sell the book to other people. But it's exactly how you would sell a book to me. And so I immediately, she's like, it's a scientific abstract. And so we immediately, like, traded books. And then we started both reading it together. And we were jointly reading it and, like, sending each other, like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It keeps getting better. Oh, my God. I can't believe this. So, um, yeah.
0: I, and when um, people found out that you had tweeted about this book, there was a lot of squeeing. I don't know if it was done online or sort of offline, but there was a lot of... <laughs> real like I can't breathe I just need some time alone. <laughs> and when I've recovered I'll be back
1: <laughs> yeah
0: but you know it I mean Sarah McLean had it on um mm-hmm. I think she mentioned it it was on the NPR list of books yeah. of 2016 so it did amazingly well um and then there are other ones that are not quite so um you know that their structural differences is not quite as um obvious as right. as beginner's guide but they they, have, they just have their own sensibility, and mm-hmm. it's very different to mainstream U.S. romance. Yeah.
1: There's actually something that I started doing about, was it was probably 2011 or so, um, and it was harder in 2011 than it is now, but um, I set myself the goal of reading 50% books by marginalized authors, marginalized in some way, um, and 50% white authors, and the first few years of it, was hard both because self-publishing hadn't boomed yet and so it was harder to get a hold of material and also because I do think that there's familiarity does something and there is a difference in storytelling and your mind reads that difference sometimes as a quality issue and but you if you keep going to the point where the story starts feeling familiar you get beyond it and you start seeing oh this is like an originality that I've never seen before and I think it really sort of like changed what I saw, how I, how I saw fiction and how I was able to read it. Um, but it took me actually two years to get past the, I'm so used to the way the story is told that if it's not told this way,
0: then it feels wrong to me. So when we are currently living in dystopia, how do you write something that is optimistic and uplifting?
1: I'm working on that. I don't know the answer. <laughs> you might notice that it's been a while since I published a book. <laughs> you channel
0: Hamilton? Uh, go for it. Yeah,
1: you you channel how? I mean, I actually, I actually think that um, for me at this point, writing is my way of trying to answer that question because it's not just a question of how do you write. It's a question of how do you care about all the little details in your life when it's like, okay, I know I'm going to have to like make dinner and continue to eat food, um, but also the world may be ending, right? Like, I don't know. Maybe we, maybe somebody's going to start a nuclear war on Twitter in the next 24 hours. Who even knows? Should I bother making dinner? Should I bother making extras for tomorrow when we might not be here? I mean, I'm exaggerating a lot. Um, I don't think we're going to have a nuclear holocaust in the next 24 hours. It might take up to a week.
0: Anyway, um, you'll be in Australia, so you'll be uh, just fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, assuming he doesn't he doesn't randomly try and bomb Australia. Yeah, this is true. Um I mean, does he know that this isn't China? I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not sure if you noticed, but our audio producer, Rudy Bremer, was actually in the room when we recorded this interview. There was a lot of fangirling on the inside. You can find the show notes for this episode, number 36, at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help support us by leaving a review on iTunes or just telling all your reader friends to give us a try. In the next episode, Kat is joined by the incomparable Queen C.S. Cat. They chat about the Captive Prince series and they talk about what lengths readers have gone
1: through to prove themselves as her one true fan, even though it's me. It's always me. It's always Gabby. This was a fun conversation and Kat can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, we hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading.